Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. And here we are talking again about John Aller's The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. We're going to be discussing in this podcast about um, the remainder of uh, 1776 onward into um, 1780. And I know when we first started this series, we uh, had discussed um, a good deal about 1780. But in order to understand how we get to 1780, we have certainly needed to make it a priority to understand the past, most notably between 1775, 1776, and onward, to understand just how um, dire the situation in South Carolina becomes by 1780. So we're going to start off tonight with um, finishing up in 1776. And of course, when we all think of 1776, we think of uh, that time frame when um, Congress, or let alone that Second Continental Congress, decided to take that giant step in declaring separation from England. 56 men signed a document that uh, did change the course of um, history as we know it, not just around the world, but perhaps in colonial, but for what was known as colonial America to go from being a colonial country to a united country, United States. So to understand what is going on in 1776 in South Carolina, we must know that, okay, the British did try a mini Southern strategy invasion, as noted from the previous podcast, but that mission failed. So as a result, yes, many in South Carolina have all the reason to believe that they have seen the last of the British. But what they don't realize is that they are going to be letting their guards down at the same time. Here they fought very valiantly at Fort Sullivan, and uh, rightfully so, to have uh, thwarted off um, um, the British attack. But just when you think it's safe to declare victory, you must realize that um, you haven't really achieved a full-scale victory. You may have gotten the enemy off your uh, back for a short while, but it doesn't mean that the, that the objective as a whole has been achieved. In other words, you know, yes, the Continental Army could, can drive the British out at one location, but it doesn't mean that the war itself hasn't come to an end. So, as I mentioned from a previous podcast, the reason why the British are now going to um, rethink this strategy and move south again is because, um, for one, the treasury is very drained in Britain, but two, the, the last best hope will be to strike in the south. And before I get to any more of that, let's focus first off on the end of 1776. So our first leadoff bonus question will be the following. What military achievement did Francis Marion attain in November 1776, nearly four months after we have declared um, separation from England? The answer is the following. He becomes a lieutenant colonel of the South Carolina 2nd Regiment. This is the regiment that was uh, led by uh, William Moultrie, or let alone I should say Colonel William Moultrie. 
And it's very safe to say by now, Marion has become fully experienced in the military. And we're not just talking one aspect or one realm, let alone. We're talking about the infantry, cavalry, artillery, okay, infantry, uh, you know, being a soldier, um, you know, you're walking from point, moving from point A to point B on foot, cavalry, horse, artillery, that is your, um, t- you're part of the team that helps, um, you know, helps with the uh, cannons. In other words, you have an assignment uh, to ensure that the uh, artillery itself uh, works properly. Now, after driving up the Tories in the back country, along with British forces returning northward in 1776, what became of Marion's soldiers below him? So, as I mentioned earlier about how people were starting to become complacent, we're not just talking about ordinary townsfolk people. We're talking about even those who are in Marion's uh, brigade and just uh, military people alike in South Carolina, everyday people who are serving in the militia. Basically, what becomes of Marion's soldiers below him, the issues lie with recruitment and discipline, but it really comes down to being more so with the discipline matter. Marion saw several problems involving the conduct of rank and file below him that ranged from drunkenness to stealing from one another to creating problems on other people's properties. You know, it's bad enough if, you know, one of the soldiers steals from someone else's property, but if soldiers are stealing from one another, what does that tell you right there? There's no discipline. There's no structure. There's no self-respect for one another's um, personal uh, space. So how can Francis Marion go about modifying this problem or let alone resolving it to where um, it doesn't get so out of hand to where he could ultimately say, hey, I no longer have an army to uh, control. Well, he was quick to inform, um, or not inform, but let alone impose harsh discipline in the form of whippings, or should I say floggings. That sounds pretty uh, barbaric to us in today's time, but, you know, whippings and floggings weren't considered cruel and unusual punishment by 18th century standards, most notably 1776. Well, you know, the British were very um, known to engage in the floggings with their soldiers. So, yes, it sounds cruel, it might sound barbaric, but hey, sometimes you might have to use the most barbaric form of punishment to get everyone else back in line to to make them understand that, hey, look, if we act up, we meet the same form of punishment, and by doing so, we're making others suffer at our expense So the bottom line is there has to be some way to keep uh, order within the military structure. Well, as for the um, consistency or the consistency issues with with recruitment, the South Carolina General Assembly went about offering bounties and land to volunteers as a way to bolster recruitment. Well, sometimes you have to find a way to entice... um, men who are either skeptical or uncertain about whether or not joining um, the militia or um, in this, you know, in this case, perhaps the military is um, 
is the right thing to do. You know, yes, you can encourage someone left and right until you're blue in the face, but it doesn't mean that they're going to, that the party on the other end um, is going to um, heed your advice. In other words, it's like the old saying, you can take a horse out to water, but it doesn't mean it's going to uh, drink from the, uh, from the pond. So you have to get clever here in times of uncertainty to offer uh, people things that you would not do in um, times of, that crises don't exist, especially given right now that you know, recruitment itself is a challenge, and given that there are no threats towards South Carolina from the outside, but still, you've got to have a way for people to be prepared because anything can happen at any given moment. Well, what do you know? By December of 1778, Francis Marion's 2nd Regiment is at less than half strength. So, shoot, if, if a conflict arose tomorrow, Francis Marion's army, or let alone his regiment, isn't going to be ready to go. I mean, it's one thing to be at half strength, but it doesn't mean that you can still um, save the day in terms of um, thwarting the enemy from uh, advancing. So before 1778 comes to an end, you know, Francis Marion endures some personal hardship. Three out of his four brothers die. You know, it's one thing to lose one family member, but to lose three in one year. We have to remember, folks, uh, here we are in the 18th century. It was very common for family members to lose not just one immediate family relative in a year's time. It, it was common for people to lose loved ones, like say two or three loved ones within the immediate family in a year's time. So I, I can't imagine being in Marion's shoes and having lost three of my four brothers and before 1778 comes to an end, but worse yet, the British military presence returns back south. So the reason why the British are coming back south is because this is their last best hope. Think about it. They're not going to invest any more time in Boston because Boston, they figured out just how um, patriotic Boston is in terms of Boston not having loyalties to the crown. Um, the northern colonies have uh, been able to withstand um, the British uh, presence, most notably at Saratoga, which, was a, which is an American victory. Uh, Trenton and, New and uh, Princeton, which helped uh, save the revolution from collapsing. Um, Brandywine was, uh, even though that was a British victory, but the Americans still uh, were able to put up a fight. Uh, Monmouth Courthouse was more of a draw. Uh, so the bottom line is, is that up north we are seeing, we've been able to prove that we can uh, fight with the British. Come south is going to be an interesting um, story, or let alone a different story. December 29th, 1778. Britain's revamped southern strategy begins with the takeover of Savannah, Georgia. But this takeover really shouldn't have come as a surprise because there were far more loyalists in Savannah than there were patriots. However, the following year, 1779, patriot forces were determined to get Savannah back. And given that Savannah is already in British hands, what Patriot commander went about trying to reverse the situation? 
His name is uh, General Benjamin Lincoln, who is a native of Massachusetts. He believes, or let alone believed, that getting Savannah back would help ensure Charleston, South Carolina, safety. That's a good idea right there, but at the same time, by going into Savannah, who's to say that uh, someone else below him might be able to still protect Charleston? But by going into Savannah, he's going to do whatever he can to ensure that um, that uh, Charleston and South Carolina in general will be safe. We'll find out here soon if that, that strategy does work. So, um, Benjamin Lincoln is going to need some um, assistance. I don't know if he can do all of this alone, but he's going to team up with a French admiral, or let alone a French admiral named D. Admiral D'Estang, who brought a French fleet uh, from the West Indies, and it turns out that... Um, Diastang's French um, forces will be will be comprised of four thousand soldiers as well as a unit of five hundred free blacks from Haiti. As for Benjamin Lincoln's army, it will be comprised of about three thousand men, which included Lieutenant Colonel Francis Marion, Major Peter Ory, Colonel William Moultrie, and a Polish man. Name the following, Casimir Pulaski, for, and Casimir Pulaski would become the father of American cavalry. There is a county well west of um, where I live in Virginia. It's out in southwest Virginia. Um, it's uh, Pulaski, or the, the town is Pulaski, Virginia. It's named after this fellow, Casimir Pulaski. And I've mentioned from uh, podcasts and other topics about how uh, counties west of the fall line in Virginia usually are named after um, war figures, say from the American Revolution or Civil War, uh, to um, prominent Virginia statesmen. But Pulaski, when you hear Pulaski, Virginia, you think of uh, Casimir Pulaski. So here's a, another bonus question right here for you all. This is an important one because, uh, you know, it's one thing to um, wage a battle, but it all comes down to decision-making. How are you going to thwart the enemy? How are you going um, su- to surprise the enemy? You know, you just don't go show up into battle and say, uh, present arms, take aim, ready, fire. You've got to do more than that. But... Unfortunately, when um, battles are engaged, there's always some form of blunder, big and small, regardless of um, whether it's the British or the um, Americans or the Patriot side. But as for Admiral French Admiral D'Estaing, what blunder would he make towards British General Augustine Prévost? Admiral D'Estaing vehemently demanded that the British surrender Savannah. In other words, give Savannah back up and give it back into the hands of the Patriots. However, General Augustine Prévost responded back by saying to um, Admiral D'Estaing that um, if you give me 24 hours, 
I'll let you know um, whether or not I choose to surrender or whether or not I choose to give Savannah back to the Americans. Well, Gen, um, Admiral D'Estaing basically um, agreed to Prevost's response. In other words, uh, he went along with it and said, okay, I'll give you your 24 hours. Well, that's a bad um, error on his part. Why so? He fell for uh, the general's bait. The general's not going to sit back. General Prevost isn't going to sit back for the next 24 hours and decide, well, here are the pros and cons for surrendering, for surrendering, or let alone, I should say, giving Savannah back to the American forces. No, he's going to spend the next 24 hours um, doing things left and right to better fortify um, his um, defense uh, system. And British reinforcements arrive, so hey, he's got it well made now to basically say, hey, look, you wanted me to give you a response in 24 hours? Well, guess what? My response is better military fortifications. How are you going to respond to that? Well, we'll find that out here shortly. October 3rd, 1779, American and French forces begin bombarding the British with artillery fire, but the British defense line remains intact. So, you know, it's great that you're uh, willing to um, fight the enemy, but if the results aren't going anywhere, then then what's your next plan? What's the next plan, uh, course of action? Well, this one might surprise you all here. A bonus question. Were the French interested in long-term commitment to fighting this particular battle? No. For one, the British are already steadily holding their ground. However, Admiral D'Estaing's troops were not able to adjust to eating foods that weren't suited for their survival. Well, let me, all, let me ask you guys this question. What kind of food are you going to be eating in Georgia? Rice. Georgia and South Carolina grow a lot of rice, folks. Um, and most of Diastong's troops are low on bread. They're pretty much low on the, what do you call it, common uh, food provisions that they would have been accustomed to eating. So I don't think it's fair to say that um, eating rice is going to be suited to their needs. I know that sounds crazy, but, you know, not everyone's uh, palates um, work for them, even in a time of war. But then, uh, to make matters um, more daunting, is um, to the fear of being caught or let alone trapped in a storm. Why would that uh, be a concern? Well, towards October of 1779, that's still hurricane season, course they probably didn't have as many hurricanes like they do today given that so much has changed uh, weather wise uh, but of course that's a whole other topic for something else at another time but um, if Admiral D'Estaing's um, fleet force got trapped in a hurricane that could um, that could have serious implications um, for the regiment not just for the present but for the future so basically, Admiral D'Estaing is now seeing this uh, battle in his eyes. He already can see that it's going to be a disaster.
October 9, 1779, American and French forces launched an all-out assault attack on the British, which sadly would only last an hour. The outcome was very devastating to American and French forces. D'Estaing's surprise attack was foiled by a deserter, which gave the British more time to prepare. You know, it's one thing to lose a battle, but more often than not, we forget that sometimes battles are determined all in the name of someone deserting from one side to the other. The person who deserted probably didn't feel very good about the, um, the plan itself, but for all we know, that person could have been a neutral. He probably didn't have any true patriot ties. Perhaps he could have been a spy. All Well, he was a deserter, but he probably had could have had some um, connections with um, Tory sympathizers. This is the problem in the American Revolution, folks. You know, just because you're on the Tory side in South Carolina, it might not always mean that you stay a Tory forever. As I said from earlier podcasts, how... If a Tory felt slighted because he didn't receive a proper promotion, he would defect over to the Whigs. If someone from within the Whig party had um, vandalized um, or destroyed uh, someone else's property, they, there might be a chance that they just might join over to the Tory side. So in other words, it was very easy for Whigs and Tories to feel so slighted that they could defect um, one side and go to the other. But, of course, to think that a deserter alone, one deserter, um, made the difference in the British defeating the American and French forces. And it turns out that about there were a total of 600 South Carolinians who fought at the Battle of Savannah. 250 of them died while charging uphill. That's a lot of men who sadly lost their lives uh, from, one, from one state alone, I would say. But... Roughly, um, I would say between 1,000 and 1,500 men were either killed or wounded, that is French and American forces, from the, the Battle of Savannah. But, it was, but 70% of the losses were, um, were um, from the French. So it's, um, it's not a good day. It's a very um, bleak day, to say the least, on the, um, for the Americans. February 11th, 1780 is important because Sir British um, General uh, Sir Henry Clinton comes in with a force of 8,500 troops into Charleston. So here we go again, folks, deja vu, except this time it's going to be much different than the um, mini-invasion or the, mini, uh, the, the first um, small-scale attempted invasion from two years earlier. So, whereas the first attempt revolved around by water, what are the British going to do differently that probably will make a difference in the end? The capturing the city of Charleston is going to involve encircling to cutting off escape routes. Encircling meaning that they're going to be constantly um, going around the city and... Um, finding all the areas where um, escape routes can be cut off, but um, uh, what do you call it, doing surprise attacks by land, basically.
Here's another bonus question for you all. After the British had laid anchor in Charleston, what did Francis Marion do to step up? Well, Francis Marion didn't sit back and say that I'm going to let someone else worry about the problem. He goes above and beyond to improve fortification structures around Charleston. Okay, if he's doing this, wouldn't it make practical sense to think that everybody else could do the same thing too if they really cared enough about their city's well-being? Well, I hate to tell you this, folks, but the opposite happened. Most South Carolinians failed to step up when it mattered most. Many were in fear of leaving their farms and families. Well, I can understand, you know, being on a farm, you've got property to tend to, you've got to think about your livestock, you've also got to think about feeding your family. If you leave, uh, who's going to take over? And who's to say that your family will be in safe hands? Because as we know, in South Carolina, so many conflicts have been among neighbor amongst neighbor. The conflicts involving neighbor amongst neighbor far outweighed the conflicts among uh, British and uh, patriots, but directly from within the state. Now, come April 12th of 1780, General Benjamin Lincoln orders all unassigned officers without commands to return to the countryside where they can seek refuge. General Benjamin Lincoln, folks, is probably in, in one of the biggest fights of his life. He's got two choices on his, um, he's got two choices to, deal, to um, pursue. Number one, he can launch, he can um, launch a um, fight. In other words, he can um, fight the British to uh, protect Charleston, even though he is outnumbered. And many have told him that it would probably be wise to just go ahead and surrender now so that um, you will still have an army intact. And yes, option two would be to uh, surrender so that you could fight for another day. Benjamin Lincoln is, is in what's called a double-edged sword. He knows that if he fights, he won't be frowned upon as a coward but on the other hand, if he does fight and loses, the ultimate prize will, um, will rest in the hands of the enemy, being the British. So in other words, if he doesn't fight the British now, the British might be able to come back and provide him and the people of Charleston with an ultimatum. And that is, okay, if you choose not to fight, you will um, have parole. In other words... You've agreed not to fight, but by staying neutral, you will have shown to us that you are not um, a threat. Well, Benjamin Lincoln decides to um, risk it all and not be considered a coward, but by doing so in fighting. He's got about 5,000 men to defend Charleston. 5,000 might seem like a lot, but you're going up against 8,500 uh, British forces. So that does put you at a disadvantage, but as history has shown, just because one side has more troops than the other, it doesn't mean that the side that has the most always wins. April 14th of 1780, the British forces begin the first of many attacks in and around Charleston, starting with Colonel Bannister, or Bannister Tarleton, rather, I should say, with Colonel Bannister Tarleton's cavalry attack at Biggin Bridge, 
which would be the main escape route from Charleston. Biggin Bridge was just on the um, outskirts of uh, Monk's Corner, which is about 30 miles uh, north of Charleston. Now, I've mentioned Bannister, um, Bannister Tarleton before, but for those of you who have, don't know about Bannister Tarleton, he um, was the uh, leader of the British Cavalry in the uh, Southern um, Campaign. And he um, led what were known not just cavalry, but as dragoons. They were the uh, elite um, cavalry squadron. Banistray Tarleton will receive a nickname that um, sparks fear in the eyes of um, the Whigs, or let alone Patriot um, leaders. His nickname is Bloody Ban. The reason why he is called Bloody Ban is because if anybody from the uh, Patriot side in battle waved the, the truce flag, or let alone waved their hands up and surrender, Bannistray Tarleton wouldn't recognize those things. He would keep fighting. And it has been known that he, if when men surrendered, most notably a, a Virginia general named Abraham Buford, from the Battle of the Waxhaws, which was on the North, which is on the North Carolina South Carolina borderline, at that battle, Abraham Buford's um, unit demanded for a surrender, but they didn't get it. Instead, Banastray Tarleton and his uh, forces chopped off some of the men's arms. Now, pardon me for sounding gruesome, folks, but this did happen. That's how Banastray Tarleton gets his nickname, Bloody Ban. The man has no boundaries. He will do whatever it takes to inflict harm on the enemy because his mission is not only to serve king and country, but to do whatever it takes to um, regain or let alone gain a stronghold to where the 13 colonies will resubmit their authority back to the king. So Banastray Tarleton is a part of that violence that has no end in sight. May 7th of 1780 uh, is another easy victory for the British. They take Fort Moultrie without any resistance. Man, you know, I often wonder now, what if some what if what if more South Carolinians had not been fit, had not been in fear? What if many of these men had stepped up when it mattered most? What if they weren't afraid to leave their farms and families to protect not only those on the farmland, but to also think about protecting the state? If more men had come, maybe Charleston wouldn't have fallen. But you know what? That's a question that will never be uh, resolved, but it, it is a big what if. So, many of y'all are wondering, what is the, um, what town in America by 1780 is considered to be the richest town? I can tell you this much, folks, it's Charleston, South Carolina. So, on May 12th of 1780, Charleston, South Carolina, being the richest town in America, along with the Southern Continental Army, surrendered to the British forces. Well, I hate to say this, the South is in trouble. And to make matters worse, um, what did the surrender at Charleston lead 
to, or let alone what did it uh, cause for other Whig leaders? Well, it led some to become prisoners of war like William Moultrie. Then you have Benjamin Lincoln, or let alone General Benjamin Lincoln. He's forced back home to New England. And then you have a fellow named Henry Lawrence who was sent to England and got imprisoned. So just because this surrender happens, it doesn't mean that everybody on the Whig side is okay. As for Francis Marion, he goes back to Charleston, or I mean, he leaves um, Charleston to seek refuge. Um, Peter Ory goes out, leaves outside of Charleston. I think it is smart, though, that for those like Marion and, and Ory who weren't imprisoned, that they were um, safe, but it doesn't mean that there were any guarantees. Another bonus question is the following. Given how bad the situation becomes, especially as we get to August 1780, and what happened, folks, in August of 1780? There are two battles that are huge debacles. Camden on August 16th, that's the battle where Horatio Gates flees on horseback. He basically contributes the biggest blunder. He sends men out into battle who are ill-prepared to fight, men who have marched all the way from New Jersey and Virginia, and let alone Maryland, all the way down to South Carolina to fight. And most of these men, especially the New Jerseyans, were not used to 90-degree weather. I mean, we have to remember, folks, just because we live in one part of colonial America doesn't mean we can get automatically um, adjusted or acquainted to a different kind of climate. I mean, the climate in New Hampshire is far different than the climate in South Carolina. And the same would go for New Jersey. And for those of you who remember from a previous podcast uh, early on, that the situation got so bad leading up to the Battle of Camden where many of the... um, Patriot soldiers were ill-prepared to fight because they had marched about 400 miles from New Jersey to uh, South Carolina or more, and they were low on food provisions, so many of these men had to resort to using hair powder to thicken their soup. It's very scary, folks, but but that's what they had to do, and for some of them, I, I would imagine that they probably died as a result of that. Uh, some died from dysentery. Um, And then you had those who were taken prisoner. It was a very, very uh, horrific battle at Camden. And then Fishing Creek was not um, made any better, too, two days later. So, you know, it's a good thing that maybe Francis Marion wasn't at Camden or Fishing Creek. Um, Horatio Gates did him a nice favor by sending him to um, Williamsburg Township or uh, Witherspoon Ferry to um, become the commander of the um, Williamsburg Township Militia. Had Marion fought at uh, Camden or let alone even Fishing Creek, who's to say that he might not have, have survived? He probably, If he had survived, he probably would have been a prisoner of war. So, as I said from earlier, when we first started this podcast session, or let alone podcast series on the Swamp Fox... Francis Marion was the only, he was the last strong holdout that had not been um, captured or fought amongst the British. He's in hiding. 
And the best thing he didn't do was he didn't tell his men what had happened being the debacles at Camden and Fishing Creek. Had he done that, I think there would have been desertions left and right. Not just to say go over to the British side, but just not to even want to fight. It's one thing to give your um, brigade units some bad news, but there again, I think that even the leaders of a brigade need to think twice about how much bad news you want to give the people below you. People below you can only take but so much. So, Francis Marion doesn't have a whole lot of time uh, to sit around and uh, sulk and uh, feel sorry for what's going on. He knows that something's got to be done to restore morale, even if it's something small. But the bottom line is, it has to get done. Otherwise, how can there be a, how can there be any kind of unified front in South Carolina to fight the British? So. That means he's going to have to do something different. He's going to have to reinvent how war, how war itself is fought, or, or not just so much how war itself is fought, but the style of fighting. And that means an irregular style being guerrilla warfare. In other words, we're not going to come out into the open and do that traditional fire um, from 100 yards away out in the open battlefield where the enemy sees you in plain sight, we're going to do something different. That is, we're going to engage the enemy in the woods. We're going to engage them without being visible. We're going to incur small... We're going to uh, go about um, inflicting small-scale um, strikes against the enemy, but over time the casualties will mount. And not only will casualties mount, but supplies might be decimated as well. So come August 23rd of 1780, Francis Marion's brigade drives off the British guard at Murray's Ferry to move into Nelson's Ferry, which would become a key crossing point on the Santee River between Charleston and Camden. Okay, he's moving in the right direction, folks. But the big surprise comes August 24th, the day after. 150 American Army prisoners are held at Thomas Sumter's abandoned plantation home north of Nelson's Ferry under the guard of 60 British troops, mostly from the 63rd Regiment of Foot. And it should be pointed out that the, 100, that the 150 soldiers who are prisoners were, had fought at the Battle of Camden. And the vast majority of them were from New Jersey, believe it or not. Francis Marion decides to attack at night, which is a very smart thing to do because um, by attacking at night, you have a better chance of surprising the enemy. Because if you do it in the daytime, you're it's too vulnerable. You want to you want to. Um, create the most havoc when it's very difficult to see because if you do the opposite then you don't really have a whole lot of success. So Marion decides to attack at night with about 70 men and I must admit that the game plan didn't start off right. Peter Ory's group of men were spotted by the British but Peter Ory was smart enough to hold his um, unit down. In other words, rather than retreat, 
he made a, a full charge at the British soldiers. Ori led a charge towards the front of the house where the enemy left their muskets out in plain sight. In other words, it's one thing to be out in the open on a patrol, but you better have your musket or rifle on you because if you don't and you are confronted by the enemy, the enemy will find a way to overpower you. So by the time the enemy makes it back to the um, abandoned plantation of Thomas Sumter's, Francis Marion's force converges on, or let alone converges with uh, Peter Ory's unit to where the British are left with no other choice but to surrender. And what do you know? No losses on the American side, and all 150 prisoners were rescued. Now, if that's not exciting news, I don't know what is. Some people may think this may seem like nothing, but the fact that Francis Marion and Peter Ory saved 150 prisoners' lives, that ought to deserve, that ought to give them like the equivalent of a uh, Purple Heart or, or some kind of. Uh, heart or metal for uh, bravery. So this um, incident, or let alone a small skirmish, it may not have seemed like one, but it did give us, or let alone the Patriots and the Whigs in South Carolina, a sense of hope that, that the light had not been completely extinguished. So basically, this victory, or let alone nighttime raid by Francis Marion, marks the first sign of hope. The bigger question now will be this, folks. Can Well, a couple of questions. Number one, can Francis Marion keep the momentum going? Can he find, secondly, can he find others to join him in his militia who are willing to um, fight against the British? And three... Can Francis Marion stay alive? That's the biggest question of it all, folks. You know, it's one thing to have achieved some glory. Now another thing is, okay, how do I stay alive? How do I not only ensure the safety of the men below me, but my own safety? Because there are plenty of other people now who are learning about Marion for the first time and on the British side, especially Lord Charles Cornwallis, um, Clinton, Sir Henry Clinton, and eventually Banastre Tarleton will find out about Francis Marion too, but, but some of these prominent British figures are now going to start wondering, hey, what is it going to take to defeat Francis Marion? We've got to know where he hides. We've got to know, we've got to get a better understanding of the terrain that we're, um, that we're um, navigating in. So, Let's remember this, folks. The revolution in South Carolina is staying afloat because of Francis Marion. And his being alive will either make or break as to whether or not the revolution will um, stay afloat. I mean, yes, it would be easy to say that if Marion didn't survive, then the revolution might not stay afloat. But the bottom line is, is that um, Marion will have to do whatever it takes to, to be safe. And he's also got to do whatever it takes to keep his um, ragtag band of militiamen 
uh, disciplined and focused so that they will be ready to fight come another day. Well, folks, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and we are now back on track in 1780. But remember, in order to understand the crisis of how bad things got in South Carolina in 1780, we did need to understand a bit of the past. We need to understand just how, um, how bad the fall of Charleston was, the blunder in Savannah. But remember, folks, Francis Marion may not be the most decorated um, person, although he has earned his way up into the, he has worked his way up into the ranks of the military, being a lieutenant colonel now. But I think it is fair to say that um, he will uh, portray George Washington-style uh, traits, and he will know how to uh, conduct uh, warfare, but by doing so in a different um, style. Well, I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Thank you for listening. Uh, take care and stay safe.